Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, 18th century botanist and explorer William Bartram is portrayed by J.D. Sutton. It's a great time capsule of uh, what Florida was like in the uh, mid-1770s. We'll discuss the American Revolution-era papers of Joseph Marshall. Joseph Marshall was a a young man at the uh, beginning of the war. He was only about 18, actually. And he joined a loyalist militia group known as the King's Rangers. And we'll talk about turpentine labor camps. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. My book. It was not published finally until about six years ago in 1791 near 15 years after my return. Shortly after I came back, Dr. Franklin had endeavored to raise a subscription for its printing, but naught came of that. And when at last it was published, it was poorly done and ill-received, some finding great humor in the style of my writing. Though in England it was well-received, though even there some questioned the veracity of what I had written, some wondering indeed if My travels were not unlike Gulliver's mere fancy. But thou art from the Floridas, and thou wilt apprehend at once the truth of what I have written. William Bartram's Travels is a classic book documenting the flora, fauna, and native people of 18th century Florida. Actor and playwright J.D. Sutton portrays the botanist and explorer in the one-man performance William Bartram, Puck Puggy's Travels in Florida. As J.D. Sutton explains, William Bartram began his career following in his father's footsteps. Without um, the father's influence, William never would have gotten interested in botany. Uh, John was a self-taught botanist, pretty much. And um, when William was 14, he joined his father on a trip up to the Delaware Water Gap and had his first encounter with a rattlesnake, um, which was not successful, um, at least for not for the rattlesnake. And um, in, when following the French-Indian War, when Spain ceded Florida to England, um, John Bartram had been named botanist to the King of England and he charged John to explore the uh, Florida territory to see what might be there, what the potentials were in the country. So in 1765, John got William to join him on an expedition up the San Juan, St. John's River. And uh, that's how they, they traveled together. And William was so taken with Florida that he stayed on and tried his hands as uh, running a small plantation on the uh, St. John's near uh, um, west of St. Augustine. In 1773, William Bartram started a four-year trek through southeastern North America, coming to Florida in 1774. He'd received a 
um, pension, a, a bonus, a, a stipend from one of his father's patrons. And uh, because of that, uh, the patron said, explore the southern colonies, send me drawings, send me descriptions of the plants and the animals that you find here. Also, please send back plants and seeds for his own garden outside of London. And uh, much of that garden is still there, Father Gill's garden. So William spent some time in Georgia exploring that territory, and then in 74, he came in the St. Mary's, uh, got himself a small boat, and uh, started to ascend the St. John's. He had sent his goods ahead to a couple of uh, trading companies, and uh, they had been found, and he picked those up, and then he started exploring the interior as well. He uh, traveled with a uh, trading party over to uh, Cuscoella, uh, Micanopy, basically, that area, with uh, the Payne's Prairie, which uh, he called the Alachua Savanna, and wonderful descriptions of the savanna, which I, I do in the play. While collecting seeds and meticulously documenting flowers, plants, and animals, Bartram also interacted with Florida's Seminole Indians. Oh, he had wonderful encounters with the, the Seminoles. He uh, and was very taken with them as a people for their... Um, their honesty and uh, just their personalities. They were very giving, very open, very friendly, very welcoming to him. In fact, they're the ones who gave him the name of Puck Puggy, which uh, he always said meant the flower hunter, uh, which it may have, I think it was kind of a put down, which he didn't quite get. Uh, he just took the idea that he was honored to be named the flower hunter by, these, uh, by the, uh, the chief and given permission to explore the territory around Cuscoella for collecting medicinal herbs and plants and things and uh, writing about them and identifying them and sending them on to England and to his father's garden in Philadelphia. Part of what makes Bartram's travels such a useful resource and engaging work today is his detailed drawings. J.D. Sutton. He was a brilliant illustrator. Um, his drawing of the uh, Franklinia tree that they found on the Altamaha River is uh, probably his best known, but he did pages and pages and pages of illustrations which uh, were then hand-colored and sent to his patron in London. And they're still there in the British Museum. When it was first published in 1791, Bartram's Travels was well-received by some, but also faced some harsh criticism. The biggest attraction was that uh, the stories were made up. Um, he's not following Gulliver by all that many years. And um, it, the style of the writing is early romantic writing. Um, Coleridge uh, uses him as a source for Kubla Khan. And the writers of the period, uh, the late 1700s, early 1800s, are really drawn to him for the style of his writing. But when the book first came out in 1791, the writing was really kind of mocked. And the stories were kind of mocked. Um, he had visitors at the garden in uh, 97, the year that I set the play. And uh, one of them is that, yeah, Alligators. Oh, yeah, you fought alligators. Oh, yeah, sure you did. Tell us about these alligators. Ha, ha, ha. And William got real quiet all of a sudden and um, didn't have much more to do with these gentlemen. 
Setting off, I reached the first line of those who were guarding the entrance to my landing, paddling with all my might towards the lagoon. Yet two very large ones pursued me closely, jumping up out of the water with their heads and bodies above the water, snapping the jaws together so close to my ears as almost to deafen me, and belching floods of water over me like, like a flood in a hurricane. I, I laid my cudgel against them so effectively, though at random, I was able to beat them back a little. Although Bartram's Travels was written nearly two and a half centuries ago, it still speaks to modern audiences. J.D. Sutton. It's a great time capsule of uh, what Florida was like in the uh, mid-1770s. Uh, it's like when, you, when the drilling companies do core samples and they drill down into the earth or uh, down in Antarctica where they drill down into the ice to find out what the atmosphere was like way back when. That's what Bartram does for us. He gives us this core sample of what not, uh, not only Florida, but all of the southern colonies were like in those mid-1770 years, talking about the Indians, talking about the plants, talking about flocks of parakeets, the Carolina parakeet, so numerous they blocked out the sun. And uh, we don't have that anymore because they're extinct, but we've got that visual image of, uh, of what it was like. Uh, gopher tortoises, which they hadn't seen before, that are so big a, a man can stand on top of them. They're wonderful images, and that's what makes Bartram fun. J.D. Sutton's one-man show, William Bartram, Puck Puggy's Travels in Florida, is a Chautauqua-style performance allowing audience interaction. Well, the Chautauqua Institution in Chautauqua, New York, was a summer religious uh, study camp. Uh, Bible study camp, and along with that it was also an educational center so that uh, people could go there, they could attend lectures, they could take art classes, they could do any number of things, and in fact they still can. At the time some of the scholars who would come would give lectures and they would also sometimes dress as if they were the person. They would dress as if they were Wordsworth or Coleridge or whomever. And then during the course of the performance, they would uh, take questions from the audience as the character. And then following the performance, they'd do any questions or answers the people wanted to, to hear. And uh, that's the style. I find it intriguing just because it does allow the audience to ask questions. And you get some great questions. Although most of what J.D. Sutton discusses in the play focuses on William Bartram's travels in Florida, he has set the show in the Bartram family garden in Philadelphia. Once William came home in 77, he never really left Philadelphia again. Uh, he did some trips around the area, but uh, never really extensive travels. And um, it just made more sense to me since he's in the garden in 1797 and we've got descriptions of travelers meeting him there at that time to set it there and have a delegation coming up from Florida to Philadelphia and um, they may have some business with the Congress which is in session down at the State House. And while they're there, they might go four miles across the Schuylkill River and visit Bartram's garden. Uh, maybe they've met William or met John in a previous trip and they're coming to pay their respects. And William sort of waylays them and starts talking to them.
Many familiar names from colonial America visited the Bartram family garden where Sutton's play takes place. Everybody went to Philadelphia. A delegation, when they were putting together the Constitution, a delegation went out early one Sunday morning and stopped at the garden and walked around there. Uh, Washington was a frequent visitor. Uh, Jefferson bought plants to be shipped down to Monticello. So, yeah, the, the Bartram family were the first really successful commercial botanical garden. Uh, not only was it a garden for inspection of plants from all over the world, uh, but particularly North America, um, they were a commercial gardening center. So plants that they had discovered are everywhere. And of course, the network of the early botanists is uh, amazing. I have a friend who portrays Andre Michaud, and Michaud had contacts in Asia. So this was quite a trade. J.D. Sutton's portrayal of William Bartram has evolved over the years. The performance was originally commissioned by the Florida Humanities Council. I'd been portraying uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, for them for about a year. I had um, created a Thomas Jefferson play back in 98. And uh, after several years of doing it, someone from the Humanities Council saw me. And um, they invited me on board. Uh, especially since in that particular hour-long program, Mr. Jefferson talks a good deal about slavery, which is an important topic to them. After a year of portraying Mr. Jefferson for them, they approached me and said, what do you think about putting together something on William Bartram? Well, I'm like any other actor. I said, yeah, I could probably do that. And then I left and said, who the heck is William Bartram? I have no idea who the heck William Bartram is. Um, now, I grew up in Philadelphia, but William's pretty unknown in Philadelphia. Everything's John Bartram, his father. You know, it's the John Bartram Gardens, it's John Bartram High School, John Bartram Boulevard, everything's John Bartram. Uh, so I had no idea who William was, so I went out and grabbed a copy of Travels. Fortunately, it was a really good copy of Travels, Francis Harper's edition. and. Um, started reading it. First I read just the Florida section and said, yeah, there's something in here. I'm not quite sure, but there's something here. Then I read the rest of the book and said, oh yeah, there's a lot of stuff here, but they just want Florida. Okay. And um, put together the best stories, uh, most interesting stories, I think. And um, that has changed over the years of people have asked for different things or different takes on things. Some things have been edited down, some things have been added. The biggest thing was working uh, my way around the language, which um, is written for a reading versus a hearing audience. And um, I'm biased, but I think it's pretty good. Actor and playwright J.D. Sutton performs the one-man show William Bartram, Puck Puggy's Travels in Florida, bringing the 18th century naturalist to life. How far I have succeeded in providing useful information, you yourselves will determine. Yet I know these things to be true, and I have related them as near as I could conceive or express myself. Besides, thou have not come to listen to me, but to, to visit our garden, and um, perhaps to make purchase of our seeds. My friends, come, let me show you our garden. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Visit our website at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like our annual meeting and symposium, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. To receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report, click the Join Now button. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, between 1763 and 1783, Florida was under British control, which made it a safe haven for British loyalists during the American Revolution. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Often when we think about the American Revolution, people tend to focus on the mid-Atlantic states up around the Northeast. But it's important to understand that there was quite a bit of of, um, action sort of going on uh, in the southern colonies, and that included the, uh, the Florida colonies, east and west Florida, which at the time were controlled by the British. They were British colonies. Um, and at the outbreak of, of the war in the late 1770s, um, Georgia really became a, uh, a colony that was uh, constantly fought over. There was a, a huge sort of um, rebel uprising, but there were also a number of loyalists. Uh, who did stay behind. And some of the major cities in Georgia, Charleston, Savannah, changed hands quite a bit, Augusta. Um, But uh, East Florida actually uh, remained uh, in British hands throughout the war. And that was actually uh, not by chance. There were a number of attacks on uh, by rebel forces coming out of Georgia uh, into East Florida. But there are a number of these small militia units who actually defended uh, the capital, defended St. Augustine. Well, the Joseph Marshall collection at the Library of Florida History contains some very rare documents from this period. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Joseph Marshall was a a young man at the uh, beginning of the war. He's only about 18, actually. And he joined a loyalist militia group known as the King's Rangers. Uh, And they were led by a a very famous man named Thomas Brown, uh, who was in in Florida and also in Georgia. Uh, Well, Joseph was actually living with his family in Georgia, decided to join the the loyalist militia, uh, and was uh, assigned to one of these small detachments, but quickly rose through the ranks. And we can see that through a number of the documents that we have in this collection. We actually have his original appointment as a captain, as an officer in this militia unit, and it's signed by, uh, by Thomas. And it's dated uh, 17, this is a little bit later in the war, so 17, um, 1780 when he was promoted to captain. Um, but it also lists some of the stipulations that go along with, uh, with this promotion. And that included uh, recruiting your own um, soldiers. And uh, another interesting document we have here, uh, this, these are all original documents, by the way, um, are the instructions for how to recruit soldiers into your loyalist regiment, which is really fascinating. And it talks about, you know, they have to pledge allegiance to the British crown and to the, to the, uh, to the king. Um, also talks a little bit about payment. And at the bottom here, it mentions that uh, anyone who does sign up and, and serve their, their allotted length of time, they'll be uh, paid in, uh, in land, in land sessions. Um, and that was real, uh, really important to the Florida colonies because the British were always trying to bolster the population. And this was one way to do that. They would gr- uh, give these huge land grants to, uh, to soldiers who would fight in loyalist units. And these are all uh, beautifully written, handwritten documents. Right. They're all about um, what we could center like legal size paper, and it's on a um, on kind of a vellum paper and and uh, somewhat almost like an old parchment. You know, they're they're a bit yellowed, but you're right. The handwriting is absolutely beautiful. Um, 
And it, it, Marshall was actually had very um, uh, clear handwriting. Unlike a lot of a lot of the documents that we come across from this time period, you can read through these these letters um, quite easily, and they're really fascinating. Like I said, as you kind of go through it, you can follow this young man uh, crossing the border between Florida and Georgia. Although most of the action took place in Georgia. Um, another really fascinating part of the collection is his handwritten journal. It's a small leather-bound book. Um, you know, it's about six inches, six by four inches, uh, and it's. Uh, it looks like it was probably compiled from field notes. Uh, was was actually put uh, um, into this form about 1790, sometime. So after the war, um, so there's probably quite a bit of of. Uh, recollection mixed in with actual events. But he does mention coming to Florida after the end of the war, and this is where it kind of gets interesting. People forget, um, you know, after the, the war ended, the British um, capitulated. You know, Georgia became an American, uh, an American colony, and the British were forced to leave. So you had thousands of people who now became refugees who were sailing down to the closest uh, British port at that time, which was St. Augustine. Uh, and he mentions crossing the, the treacherous bar into St. Augustine, which we know uh, many ships were lost as they were coming in in 1783. But he also mentions staying in St. Augustine for a very brief amount of time because as soon as they got there, they, they found out that um, the ownership had changed a little bit. Um, the uh, the Spanish had actually taken control of, of British East Florida. Uh, so now we have this poor marshal who uh, just survived a war, uh, has now sailed down to St. Augustine and, and has to leave. So Marshall, at the end of the American Revolution, uh, stayed in Florida as it was transferred back to, to Spanish control and uh, tried to retain some land that he had, right? That's right. As I mentioned before, as payment for his services, the British would give out these huge land grants. Um, and Marshall actually received a 1,000 acres over in uh, what is now Escambia County, just west of, of Pensacola. Um, but unfortunately, it was not honored by the incoming Spanish government. Uh, so he decided to leave and, and actually ended up in, in Nova Scotia, of all places. <laughs> all right, great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. The turpentine industry was a vital part of Florida's economy in the last century. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com reports, the turpentine industry relied upon labor camps. The turpentine industry in the southeast was popular because that's where the pine trees are, essentially. The longleaf pine tree ranges, its natural range is from, the, from southeastern Virginia south to the Atlantic and into the Gulf Coast of Florida. So where the pine trees are is where you're going to find that industry. After the Civil War, it was really one of our only industries. There was lumber, there was turpentine, and there was farming. That was Barbara Hines. She's the North Central Regional Director for the Florida Public Archaeology Network. I spoke with Ms. Hines about life in the turpentine camps in Florida. After the turn of the 20th century, turpentine and the larger lumber industry itself had become a boom business, with its peak in 1919 creating upwards of $50 million worth of product for market. What gets lost in this discussion are the workers and the lives they created. I asked Barbara Hines to tell me about the workers at these camps and the difficulties they confronted. Well, post-Civil War, during the Reconstruction period, which you know dates from 1865 to about 1876, Convicts became 
very popular in many labor-intensive industries, including the turpentine industry. About 60% of the costs associated with turpentine can be directly traced to labor. So it's a very labor-intensive process because you actually had to have there cutting the trees and collecting the rosin and things of that nature. Um, there were also people that were paid in the um, turpentine industry. Uh, they weren't paid a lot, um, and a lot of times they were paid in company scripts or company money. And essentially what that is, is the company would buy groceries wholesale, and they would have a commissary, and they would sell these groceries at retail price, and you could only pay using company scripts. So when you got paid, you weren't actually getting money like we do today. You were getting probably a little coin that had the company's stamp on it, and that's all you could use. So you couldn't use it anywhere else but the company commissary. Of course, you couldn't move on to another job until you paid your debt to that company. So it became almost you know, a cycle of poverty for these people in some cases. So it wasn't the most economically viable employment, but for a lot of people that were not well-educated, this was one of their only options here in the Southeast. We know very little about these workers and their lives. If it weren't for the writer Zora Neale Hurston and her work with the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Federal Writers Project, we would know even less. Ms. Hines tells me why Hurston was so effective in recording the stories of the workers in the turpentine and lumber camps. Zora Neale Hurston was an African-American woman who was hired by the CCC to go out and record people, record the way of life of people who worked in the turpentine industry. She was an anthropologist. Uh, she wrote amazing ethnography. She was also a well-known author, as we know now. But she would go into these, she was actually hired to go into these turpentine camps and record what life was like for these workers. She was African-American, and the majority of turpentine workers were African-American. So they felt comfortable enough to discuss their local culture with her, which was great. And she has some great ethnographies that you can find where she talks about the people and their way of life. And some of my favorite quotes uh, come from Zora Neale Hurston. I actually happen to have one right here. Uh, she was talking about the turpentine still, which was a very sticky, messy job. And she said, going down one road, I smelt hot rosin and looked and saw a gum patch. That's a turpentine still to the outsider, but gum patch to those who work them. So she did a good job of bringing in that local culture that the outsider might not be familiar with. I mean, if I had not happened upon one of her uh, ethnographic accounts, I would have never known what a gum patch was. To me, I would have thought it was a patch of the trees that they were working or something like that. So she does a really good job of bringing in that local culture. I interviewed Barbara Hines and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Look for it on iTunes. That was Barbara Hines, and I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. 
Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.